Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the editor for A Better Peace. I'm glad you've tuned in for another episode. Last year marked the 50th anniversary of the 1968 Tet Offensive of the American War in Vietnam, an event which, for many, marks an important moment in the war. Between the 1968 Tet Offensive and the withdrawal of American forces in 1973, strategies, tactics, and experiences of the war changed for leaders, soldiers, and civilians. Our understanding of this late part of the war continues to change as historians work in new archives and consider new perspectives. So I've invited three leading scholars of the Vietnam War to join me today to explore some of these issues. First is Hang Nguyen, who is the Dorothy Berg Associate Professor in the History of the United States and East Asia at Columbia University. She is the author of Hanoi's War, an international history of the war for peace in Vietnam, and she is now working on a comprehensive history of the Tet Offensive of 1968. Hi. All right, next we have Bob Brigham, who is the Shirley Ecker Bosky Professor of History and International Relations at Vassar College. He is the author or co-author of nine books, most recently Reckless, Henry Kissinger and the Tragedy of Vietnam. Hi, Jackie. And finally, we have Greg Dattis, who is a retired Army Colonel and Professor of History and the Director of the Master of Arts Program in War and Society at Chapman University. He is the author of three books on the Vietnam War, including most recently Withdrawal, Reassessing America's Final Years in Vietnam. Hey, Jackie. Thanks for having us. Great. So thanks for coming to uh, join me at War Room today. So I'd like to start off with a question, and Greg, I'll I'll go to you first, about the story that that we in the United States sort of usually tell about the Vietnam War between 1968 and 1973. Yeah, I I think the biggest one, at least the one that's most appealing, especially to the U.S. Army in particular, is this idea that after the Tet Offensive, uh, we had a new commander come in with Creighton Abrams, who replaced William Westmoreland as the head of the U.S. Military Assistance Command in Vietnam, or MACV. And then almost immediately uh, changed uh, American strategy and tactics, uh, according to one account, uh, within 15 minutes, U.S. strategy had changed. And then in the process of that change of command, uh, this new approach to the problem of Vietnam, both political and military, was run by, by Abrams to the point where he'd actually won the war by, by mid-1970. So there's this, I think, appealing idea that if you can have a new commander come in with a new strategy, um, that uh, they can turn around a war that, that is, has been lost. And um, I think clearly that's problematic on, on a whole host of issues, but um, certainly one, I think, like I said, that, that it is appealing to, to uh, military officers in particular. Okay, so Bob, what about from, from sort of your world? What is the story from 68 to 73? Well, it's interesting that with as much has been written about Vietnam um, that scholars have, have done, that we still kind of fall into these tropes. And one of the major tropes is that from Tet to the end of the war, it's, it's um, as if events were, were foreordained, that this was going to happen. It was predestined in a certain way. And I think the story we tell ourselves lacks a lot of the contingency that the real-life events uh, really capture. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're slowly starting to see the, the connectedness between military affairs on the ground, diplomacy, 
intelligence, domestic politics, um, but we still just scratch the surface. So the story, I think, from these last years is still kind of cemented in this narrative arch that says, uh, you know, once Nixon came in, it was inevitable that there would be a withdrawal of American troops and that the Saigon Army inevitably wouldn't be able to stand up mm -hmm. to the North Vietnamese Army and that there would be a failed peace at the end of this. Right. It's as if Tet is the axiomatic starting point and everything naturally flows from, from that. There. And that's really not how history works and it's not really how lives are lived and events take place. So It's, it's funny because we, we know that as historians, right, we're always theoretically looking for contingency, looking for ways that things could have happened differently, but most of the time we do sort of know how things turned out, and it can be very hard to not yeah. tell these teleological stories that where, where the where the ending is is for foreordained. Um, Hang, what about from from your world? I'd uh, I'd agree uh, with my um, co-panelists here um, and say that the the typical story one hears about uh, the 1968 post-Tet Offensive War, uh, particularly for the Vietnamese sides, is that for the North Vietnamese, it was just basically a slow yet uncomplicated road to victory, uh, that it was foreordained to happen, uh, but due to the circumstances of the post-Tet War, it had to be a slow road. Um, and in terms of the South Vietnamese uh, story, uh, you just flip it. It was a slow and uncomplicated road to decline. Uh, and I think the reality, if you look at the historical record, is it's much more complicated than that. They're highs, they're lows, and nothing was foreordained. All right, so if we're going to tell a more complicated story, where do, we, where do we start? What is it that we still need to know about the years between 1968 and 1973? What are we still finding out? Why exactly did Jane Fonda turn against the war and ruin it for us, right? All right, so that, we're, that we're like five minutes in, yeah, yeah, right. and we've got gotta, our first gotta go there, Jane right, Fonda right. reference. Um. Well, I think that's part of the problem, though, right, is that, that I think what, what gets in the way of asking those or answering those types of questions, right, is that I think especially for this kind of post-Tet period, when you, if you believe the narrative that we won a military victory and lost, lost, it, at lost it at home or lost it um, in some other realm outside of the military, um, then I think part of the history then becomes uh, a search for blame. I've got to find out who to blame for mm -hmm. this this loss. If, if in fact we didn't win, um, or in the in the better war thesis, right? Then then how was it that we won by 1970 and then lost after that? Right. And I, so I think that complicates it uh, even further. Is that from an American centric scholarship standpoint? Um, I think much of it is driven by this search for for finding a scapegoat to make it understandable for why mm -hmm. we lost. So a sort of post-mortem, and there's there's lots of blame to go around, right? So media, public opinion, Jane Fonda, right. the military, the damn politicians back in Washington, damn bastards up at higher, right? We can we can go right. through the litany of people who might have have done this in our in this telling what role do the from the American side, what role do Vietnamese actors play in any of these explanations? Partly, I, th I think, is a, I mean, I think we're getting better at this, um, but I think certainly, I think in the 1980s and 1990s, it was, that was the crux of the problem. It was lazy leadership in the Arvin. It was a corrupt um, Saigon government, um, you know, throw in your pejorative, and, and that was the problem, is that we were doing everything right, and, and our, our local ally on the ground just couldn't get it together, and mm -hmm. um, so I think um, 
I, again, I think we're getting better, and, and clearly Bob has, has written on this more than anyone here. Um, but I, I think that that was one of the standards for who to blame. One of the um, standard yeah. stories. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my my work doesn't compare to the good work that that hangs done on these on these issues. But I think there's still even even on the American side of things, even if we want to have that American centric narrative, there's so much more work to be done to integrate the different. Um, levels of analysis that we need to and the different subject matters. Um, it's surprising how little we really know about major, major events of the war during the Tet Offensive, and I'm sure Hang's going to touch on this in, in, her, in her book, but why, why did the uh, Alpha Company 1-1 think there were 250 uh, NVA soldiers at the MACB compound south of the river and way because the intelligence at Fubai at Battalion Headquarters told them that. Well, why did they tell them that? We still don't know, like, basic, that there were 10,000 mm -hmm. there. So the, I think part of the issue is we've gotten our little silos, and we've worked that, that silo. We've worked that garden. But the integrative work, whether it's in Vietnamese sources or American sources or intelligence sources versus diplomatic sources, we still haven't done a lot of that integrative work that creates a kind of narrative arc in which people can join that yeah. story and that discussion. There's still no consensus. I've sometimes said that for Vietnam, we st we still, historians of the war, we still don't agree on exactly what happened, much less on the interpretation of what happened or, or why it happened. Documents are still being declassified. We're still gaining access. Um, the sort of multi-archival work is, is, I think, really picking up, and it's, it's really mm -hmm. encouraging. But there's still a ton yeah. to do. And, and even framework. I mean, you're going to get answers. As a scholar, you're going to get answers to the questions you ask. And I think our framework for asking questions still hasn't really matured to the level that we're going to need to be to get some kind of mm -hmm. consensus um, on these things. One of the interesting uh, themes in Max Hastings' new book, which has some issues, but I think that one of the interesting themes is that most of the decisions made were about politics in Washington, not politics in Saigon or mm -hmm. politics in Hanoi. That's an interesting theme to explore. He's not the first to do it, but it's even simple, you know, kind of macro thematic elements like that. We need to do more work that integrates all of this stuff together. Sure. Hang, you've probably done more work in Vietnamese sources than the rest of us around around the table. Um, from from that sort of point of view, what are the things that we that we still don't know that we're still sort of finding out and figuring out? This is a good question. I mean, I'll just pick up on on, on things that Greg and Bob have said. I think one of the um, one of the interesting things you see if you look over the other side of the Pacific is there's mirror developments taking place uh, in North Vietnam and in South Vietnam um, but many of these developments we need to we need to we need to do more research and we really don't we're just scratching the surface uh, trying to figure out what was going on um, in the Republic of Vietnam and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam but if you kind of just look at it in a just cursory overall survey I think what you see is that you know Civil-military relations in North-South Vietnam were very similar in, in certain ways to in what was going on in the United States. Uh, civilian leaders and military leaders were not always on the same page, and they fought. 
that's just sort of we need to understand those debates and about exactly who are the winners and losers of various discussions uh, regarding strategy. And the other is that, you know, I find even though, again, North and South Vietnam were so there were different systems, they subscribed to different political ideologies, but in many ways the state both north and south of the 17th parallel acted in the same way vis-a-vis -vis their general population. So one of the things we, we also need to understand, just as we know so much more about uh, Johnson's and Nixon's you know, sort of very uh, antagonistic relationship they had with the anti-war movement, so too did the party um, and the government in Saigon have a very tense relationship with any sort of uh, dissident um, individuals within their societies. And can, I, I want to go back to a piece that Bob mentioned, which I think is really important here, this, the, uh, the challenge of, of doing really good integrative history. And I think part of the problem with that is it's really difficult in these types of wars, in these provincial wars, where the war seems different in southern provinces of South Vietnam than it does in northern provinces. And I think part of the problem with achieving this integrative history is that, that actors of the day were having a hard time integrating the political and the military mm -hmm. and finding some cohesiveness to the larger war itself. Um, and so I think one of the reasons why it's hard for historians to, to do this integrative history is because the actors of the day were having a hard time integrating the very strategy that were, they were trying to implement. And so I think what happens is you find, like Bob said, these silos. So as an example, Mark Bowden's uh, latest book on Way. It's an amazing micro-tactical history where, I mean, you're literally following mm -hmm. squads around corners, and yet as soon as you get up above the, the squad level and into kind of more operational and strategy, he goes right back to the cliches and tropes of bad generals, didn't understand the war, all they cared about was body right. counts, um, in part because he was so focused on the micro-tactical piece and didn't integrate that into the larger, um, more recent scholarship at the strategic level. So. You, you know, you, you've got this kind of siloed approach to history where really interesting, good tactical analysis on top of really yeah. bad strategic and, and still people writing great work at the, at the tactical level in certain provinces in certain years of the war, thinking about counterinsurgency strategy, thinking about um, sort of rural development. And it's, it's, it's really some phenomenal historical work. And then that, but moving up, from the tactical to the operational to the strategic to the and, political is tremendously And making generalizations, right? So Kevin Boylan's got a new book on, on Bin Din, and, and I think it's a very fine provincial work. And I think he actually does a pretty good job of, of making some tentative generalizations from that one area um, without overgeneralizing mm -hmm. um, and is very careful about taking the experiences of this one province and kind of trying to expand it out to, to get some larger perspective of this very multifaceted war. There's another issue along this, if I can pick up on this theme, Jackie, that, that <clears throat> always stays in the back of my mind, a conversation I had with my dissertation advisor, George Herring. He said that uh, if he were to sit down now to start to pen out America's longest war, he just wouldn't do it. <laughs> There's too many documents. There's too, you know, to write a synthetic narrative of something so complicated with the source space that you have to visit in order to be, you know, at that George Herring level to mm -hmm. do that. This is, there when, are more. When did he, when did he write America's Longest War? Yeah, so that, yeah. I mean, that's a fundamentally different mm -hmm. time. I, my guess is there's probably more pieces of paper about this conflict than any other conflict in American history. And, and each piece of paper has some kind of value. Yeah. And uh, so that, I think that's another thing that's kept us from getting this narrative arc 
in which we can mm -hmm. have some kind of consensus so we move beyond finger pointing into right. some really serious scholarly discussions. Yeah. Now the records are all on PowerPoint. We'll never get them. Well, I think that's a huge problem, right? That, <laughs> you know, being a command historian yeah. and, uh, um, and seeing that up close, that one of the values of being a, at least an American-centric Vietnam historian is that you have memorandum that are actually laid out, whereas today... You can it's, actually it's, touch the pieces of paper. Yeah. You can get to them. But even if you can touch the pieces of paper today, they're bulleted PowerPoints that were from briefings, and, and you can't get an idea of what is actually being said in the document. Uh, so it, there's a there's a historical moment in the 70s where everything is written down. Mm -hmm. It's all typewritten, right? None of us have to read yeah. the 19th century handwriting. I mean, even the Nixon Library, which has not uh, released yeah. all of its holdings, you could spend the rest of your life. Right researching this conflict in that library yeah. right. with just what's been released. I'm not feeling terribly optimistic <laughs> um, about our about our ability to, to do this work. So with Jackie doubting the ability of career historians to wade through all of the available information, we'll pause this first episode. Join the panel in episode two to see if they can bolster Jackie's spirits. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.